uh, we are continuing in the sixth chapter of Luke, which is a very critical chapter. That's a foolish thing to say about a chapter of the Bible. Uh, but uh, this, this chapter in Luke is, is, as we are seeing, where Luke uh, records a sermon that Jesus uh, delivered to his disciples and to those who were gathered around him and it is uh, very similar in many, many respects to the Sermon on the Mount, which is much more famous sermon, much longer sermon in Matthew. Matthew takes three full chapters to deliver that sermon, which is chapters five, six, and seven in Matthew. Here in Luke, it's only one chapter, but uh, it, it is an unsparing chapter. And as we have gotten to uh, today's 37th verse, I simply would remind you of, of where we have been. We've, beginning in the 20th verse, we saw those blessings and woes followed by the 27th to 36th verse, which had to do with loving your enemies and a lot more. Last week, we essentially spent the entire uh, time on that 37th verse, or excuse me, 36, uh, uh, 27th verse about loving your enemies, but it, it continued. And if we were to take the time uh, required, beginning at that point, uh, verse 27 and following, uh, we'd be here a long time. But the good news is that is what Luke is going to do throughout the remainder of his gospel. We're going to be unpacking those incredible verses uh, that began with, with uh, that notion of loving your enemies but what we have seen thus far is that for the Christian, and, and when he's talking to his disciples, he's talking to you and to me, uh, for the Christian, there may be a necessity to endure poverty, hunger, sorrow, and persecution. And while you're doing that, you are to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, offer your good cheek to those who have already struck your other cheek, give your tunic to one who takes your cloak, give to everyone with legitimate material needs, letting your possessions go when someone fails to return them to you. Again, all of those uh, things have very wide application and Luke will, will lead us into those, uh, those applications. In the 31st verse, he, he in a sense summarizes all of that by what we sometimes call the golden rule, do unto others as you wish others would do unto you. Now, all of these dramatic uh, imperatives, and that's what they are. These are imperatives from Jesus. These aren't, uh, boy, if you, if you really make it as a Christian, if you've grown in your faith, once you're mature, maybe you will be one who possesses it. These are imperatives to every believer. And that is why uh, a man named John Stott, um, who has written many, many books over the years, uh, he wrote one called The Radical Disciple. He wrote one about the Sermon on the Mount very early in his career called the uh, Christ the Controversialist. And I remember reading that book shortly after I had arrived at Westminster Seminary and and Find, I found what he had to say about that Sermon on the Mount and uh, 
here in Luke, we can apply the same uh, to this sermon as well. It is, uh, it is a radical thing to be a Christian. Easy believism, it, it, it just it is stunning to me that the church today has, has uh, so, so much to say and so many who will say it about what is sometimes called easy believism. Uh, meaning all you need to do is sign your name on a certain statement, pray a certain prayer, come forward at a certain uh, altar call, whatever. I have nothing against any of those things as long as people understand that being a Christian, uh, that may or may not be the beginning of a journey for a Christian, but it certainly does not begin to come close to what is demanded of a Christian. And what is demanded of a Christian are some of these things we just saw. In fact, it is an utterly countercultural calling. And this is what makes, again, I've alluded to this several times, because we are born and raised in America in the 21st century, we don't really realize what a unique place this is. And it, in one sense, uh, certainly is uniquely wonderful in terms of the freedom uh, as long as we can keep it uh, and things of that nature, but it's also uniquely um, tempting. It's uniquely ruinous uh, due to the affluence that is, that is demanded almost. When we look around today at, at economic issues, you, you see the fact that it just keeps getting up, going up, 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 that whether it's the cost of a house or anything else. Uh, this past week, Bobby and I had had uh, someone looking at removing a tree. This, this wasn't a sequoia, this was a, a little maple. <laughs> and I saw the price and I thought, well, that uh, obviously, there's a decimal. <laughs> you can't, surely. Uh, and, and everything keeps going up, up, up. And as it goes up, 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 there are larger numbers of people who are disenfranchised in this culture. And those people, God is going to look to you and to me, to the Christ church people to say, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to do about that? I mentioned uh, the book, uh, Mercy Ministry by Tim Keller. Very, very good balance in that book. And the other book I, I uh, alluded to last week, uh, When Giving Hurts, When Helping Hurts, you, it, it does not mean that you just go out and start uh, trying to level the playing field. Equity is the teaching of socialism. It is not the teaching of scripture. Uh, everyone is not supposed to be equal. Uh, but those two poles, if you will, of uh, those two ends of that continuum mean that the Christian needs to think long and hard about what it means to be countercultural. Uh, the temptation in America and in fact the demand of, of living in a capitalist country. Now, now, please don't go home and tell your parents Bob doesn't like capitalism. I, I, am, I am so uh, grateful that we live in the country we do, but I am simply saying that given the fact that we now fairly routinely live 30 years beyond the income flow, uh, and there's nobody else who's going to take care of us. Therefore, it tends to make people hoarders. Another tendency that the Christian needs to fight and needs to deal with at the very least. So it's very controversial and Stott was, was exactly uh, right to, to mention all of those things. 
but the bottom line of it so clearly screams at us that it's impossible to be a Christian, to be a biblical Christian without the power of the Holy Spirit. And the wonderful news is we've got the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in each, each person who, who sees Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, so uh, we're going to, I, I just want to allude one more time to the verses we looked at last week uh, the loving of our enemies and, and show you a little, a little book. This is, this is a book called To End All Wars. Some of you may be familiar with it. If you're not, you're probably familiar with a movie that came out years ago uh, from World War II days called The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Yeah. Uh, it's an awful, it's a difficult movie to watch. Uh, they've made another one. It, the title of the book, To End All Wars, is also the title of this movie, which I watched this past week, just so I would have the truth to tell you about it, and I would not recommend it. It's, it's, um, it's just brutal. But uh, what happened in that particular uh, arena, uh, these allied soldiers had been captured. Most of them were, were uh, soldiers of the, of the British Empire, Australians, New Zealanders, uh, Brits, Scots, captured when the, when the city of Singapore fell and the Japanese wanted to build a railroad basically from Thailand into Burma, a long, long railroad through the middle of awful, awful jungle. And they were extremely cruel. 61,000 people were killed in the building of this railroad. And these men uh, were captive because Singapore fell at the beginning of the, of the war in the Pacific Many of these men were there, the ones who lived through it all were there four years of, um, of conditions that, that this book goes into and are very, very difficult to describe. But what happened in one camp, there were many camps uh, that held all of these people building the railroad. Uh, this one camp, uh, this man who wrote this book is named Ernest Gordon. Ernest Gordon and some of his friends started a school a rudimentary uh, effort. They were only, they had about three books between all of the, the men in the camp that they were allowed to keep. One of them happened to be a Bible. Uh, over the course of the four years, what he describes in this book is the, is the impact uh, of that little rudimentary effort uh, to speak to one another and to hold one another up under the most difficult circumstances I've ever read about. But here's what happened at the end of the war. They're still in prison, but it's obvious that, that the war has turned and, and Japan is going to lose, but they refuse to stop. Uh, but they're trying, the Japanese have to move the prisoners. And here's, here's what um, it says. Orders were then given for the whole camp to be moved to a new area I put in uh, for one of the first parties to leave. Each consisted of about 200 officers divided into three companies. The spiritual growth, which I had been witnessing for the past year or so, had been mostly manifest among the other ranks, that is the non-officer corps. Uh, I'd been impressed by those qualities that I started seeing in these troops, but not having had the same experience with my brother officers, I wasn't so sure about them, meaning the officers. Had the love of God touched them as well? 
My doubts were soon dispelled. Eastward, we traveled uh, towards Bangkok. All along the track, we could see the damage done by the Allied Air Forces. Often the train was switched to a temporary track, bypassing sections that had been wiped out. Occasionally, we would wait while a train passed loaded with reinforcements bound for Burma. The troops looked woefully young. Further on, we were shunted onto a siding for a lengthy stay. We found ourselves on the same track with several carloads of Japanese wounded. The wounded men looked at us forlornly as they sat with their heads resting against the carriages, waiting fatalistically for death. They were the refuse of war. There was nowhere to go and no one to care for them. These were the enemy, more cowed and defeated than we had ever been. Without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs, took out part of their ration and a rag or two, and with water canteen in their hands, went over to the Japanese train to help them. Our guards tried to prevent us, but we ignored them and knelt by the side of the enemy to give them food and water, to clean and bind up their wounds, to smile and say a kind word. Grateful cries of Arigato, thank you, followed us when we left. An allied officer from another section of the train had been taking it all in. What bloody fools you all are, he said to me. Don't you realize that those are the enemy? Here's his response. Have you never heard the story of the man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, I asked him. He was attacked by thugs, stripped of everything and left to die. Along came a priest. He passed him by. Then came a lawyer, a man of high principles. He passed by as well. Next came a Samaritan, a half-caste, a heretic, an enemy. But he didn't pass by. He stopped. His heart was filled with compassion. But that's different, the officer protested angrily. That's in the Bible. These are the swine who starved us and beaten us. They've murdered our comrades. These are our enemies. Who is my enemy? Isn't he my neighbor? God makes neighbors, we make enemies. We had experienced a moment of grace there in those blood-stained railway cars. God had broken through the barriers of our prejudice and had given us the will to obey his command, thou shalt love. It's a very, very powerful story of exactly what Luke is talking about here in the sixth uh, chapter. Uh, can I love my enemies? Yes, I can, in the power of the Holy Spirit and only in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we go today to uh, verses 37 to 42. Uh, this is, <clears throat> in, a, in a certain sense, after what we've just come through, it's a bit of a balancing and perspective uh, rendering part of this uh, passage. I'm going to break it up into several sections, and I'm going to use the titles for those sections from a man named Kent Hughes, who wrote a commentary on this. The first one, verses 37 and 38, a magnanimous disposition. Verses 37 and 38 say this, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 
There are four exhortations in these two verses. In verse 37a, again, familiar, do not judge and you will not be judged. Now, again, as all of these verses that we're seeing in the sixth chapter, all of them need to be balanced. They need to be wisely administered. Certainly he's not saying under no circumstances does any Christian ever make any judgment call. Every Christian is demanded to make judgments called. Every parent is demanded uh, to make constant judgments for uh, his or her children. Every judge uh, in the courts of law is demanded to make a judgment. Every employer uh, judges issues over employees and so forth and so on. What Luke is talking about here in chapter six is probably best expressed in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 11, uh, you remember the, this famous passage about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, he also, Jesus also told this parable, I'm in verse nine now of Luke chapter 18, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, here in verse 11, it's where uh, we unpack this, these two verses in six. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus replies, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the tenor uh, that we should be reading into these uh, sort of cryptic verses in Luke chapter six. He says, judge not lest you be judged. Well, again, clearly he's not, ruling out the, the mandate uh, to be judging, but he's saying, do not judge with this censorious attitude, the attitude of this Pharisee who thinks he's better than everybody else. Uh, at the end of the day, every Christian is, is nothing but a sinner saved by grace. Every Christian is everything as a sinner saved by grace. That is a moniker that... that um, is the best that can ever accrue to any human being on planet earth to be a sinner saved by grace. So uh, verse 37a, do not judge and you will not be judged. Second half of, of 37b, don't condemn and you won't be condemned. And the final part of verse 37, forgive and you will be forgiven. Again, these, these uh, issues will be fleshed out as we go through this gospel of Luke, but here uh, this notion of, of, of uh, forgiveness in, at the end of 37 in Ephesians chapter four, very last verse of Ephesians four says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Every one of these uh, issues that Jesus is mandating for his disciples, which is to say mandating for you and for me, comes 
as possible behavior patterns because we realize that we too, like that tax collector, are sinners who have been saved by grace and humbly accept that grace and then go out and do something with it uh, in that same humble fashion. That obviously is exactly what happened with that Samaritan uh, that uh, Ernest Gordon responded to uh, in this event, in this book. Um, The Samaritan humbly uh, against all cultural uh, norms and and, uh, faux pas helped uh, this Jew who was in the gutter, as it were. Uh, so as you move into verse 38 here, again, we're looking at a magnanimous disposition. Verse 38 begins, give and you will be given to. To the generous, God is generous. And the final half of 38, reciprocity. That's what's being spoken of in these two verses. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, press down. And then in the end of verse 38, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So again, God is is looking at every Christian, not just to get his or her card punched and to go live however I wish Monday through Saturday and and think I can, can show up at a church on Sunday and therefore I must be following all the dictates. Uh, Every aspect of the way we involve and engage whatever issue God brings into our lives is a measuring tool for what degree we are listening to the Holy Spirit who is speaking to us. That, by the way, is why it is so important throughout the New Testament that the Christian not be quenching the Holy Spirit or grieving the Holy Spirit. These issues come into the New Testament. They're not in the Old Testament because believers in the Old Testament did not all have the Holy Spirit all the time. The Holy Spirit came and went. The Holy Spirit was not present with every believer until Pentecost. That's the significance that Luke gives us in the book of Acts. But after Pentecost, and of course, therefore today, every believer has the full measure of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit If we're listening, if we're grooming that relationship, if you will, the Holy Spirit's task is to do what? To bring me back to this book, to show me what Jesus spoke. The Holy Spirit is not freewheeling in my life, uh, getting me to do dramatic things, this, that, or the other, whatever they may be. The Holy Spirit has a subordinate role in the life of the Christian to simply give me what Jesus spoke including, among other things, Luke chapter 6, so that I then have to deal with this. I then have to consider this. What is my obligation? Uh, what, uh, what, oh, it, it just goes so many directions, and um, we'll get to them over time as we are dealing with uh, this wonderful book of Luke. So we're going to move on now to the next two verses, verses 39 and 40, and Kent Hughes entitles those, A Life Imparting Vision. Verses 39 and 40 say this, He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who he is, when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Uh, I remember, um, goodness, it's been 50 50 years ago. 
uh, when I was in college, <clears throat> I was in a uh, fraternity and the national director of this fraternity was a man about um, probably looked to me like he was about 40, so it was probably about 30. But uh, at any rate, uh, he was a wonderful leader, and he, he of course, visited all the, the chapters of this particular fraternity throughout the country as, as an encouraging speaker. And when he came <clears throat> to our chapter, I was told, you need to you're going to be the point person with this man. You're going to meet him. You're going to, you're going to oversee him, see to his needs for the next couple of days and, and take him where he wants to go. Well, he came at homecoming, uh, which meant an enormous celebration in the stadium. This is at the university of Florida. Uh, and I thought, well, I mean, how much help does he need? He, he, well, I, <laughs> then I was told he's blind. And that changed the whole perspective. Uh, and I cannot read this verse uh, here in Luke about uh, can a blind man lead a blind man without, without thinking of this. It was, a, it was one of the most fascinating two days I, I spent. Uh, wonderful man, again, very insightful, very wise. And he's, he tried to calm me down a, a, shortly after we had met. He said, look, I'm just going to have my hand on your shoulder. And I want you, you're leading me. So you need to tell me when there's a curb, when there's a, a something uh, that I will not be able to see. And I thought, okay, I can do that. That's easy enough. So we got into the stadium and went up all these steps and, and finally got located. Then the festivities began down on the field. He said, describe the festivities for me. And I said, well, there's a lot of uh, raucous, noisy. Uh, he said, no, no. I can hear all of that. I want you to get to the essence of it. Tell me what's happening down on the field. And this kind of thing went on and on and on. Uh, it, it, again, it was a wonderful experience for me to understand what it means to see without vision. Um, this, this man, by the way, he, 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 because he does this all the time, he's, I, I asked him, I said, how in the world do you, you're by yourself most of the time in your travels? And he said, yes, I go into hotels. And when they get me to my room, I count, I feel my way to the door so I know where the restroom is, I know where the, the exits are, I know uh, where the bed is, I know. And he, he mentioned one time getting turned around out of the shower and uh, what he thought was walking into his room, he actually walked into the hallway. <laughs> and he, he described, he said, thankfully they had a little welcome mat at, at the entrance of each room, so I was was. He said, all I knew to do was back up until I hit a solid surface and wait for help. And he did, but that happened to be a glass uh, window into the restaurant. Of the, of the restaurant. So this, this, was, uh, this, this man taught me quite a bit. Um, but at any rate, that is, uh, that's, you know, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Uh, Two requirements to be a disciple. By the way, when it says in verse 39, he also told them a parable. Uh, parables, of course, are very, very important in, in uh, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Don't find them in John. When he says he told them a parable, this is not a narrative parable. Sometimes we, I think, overblow uh, parables. Jesus's norm for communicating truth was not parabolic. It was not symbolic. Here he is preaching a sermon. 
where you find the parables in Matthew, Mark, Luke are essentially the last year of Jesus's earthly ministry. It's after the point has been reached when Jesus knows they're good guys and bad guys. The bad guys are going to get worse and they're going to take me to a cross. The good guys, I need to help shield them from the bad guys. So he starts speaking in parables. So don't uh, overblow the fact that it says he told them a parable. This is really an illustration that he gives here in this sermon. Uh, can a blind man lead a blind man? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like uh, his teacher. He's talking about spiritual sightedness in verse 39. Uh, similar to, to this man, uh, David Putnam, uh, that I mentioned, uh, that I had the, the privilege to lead for a couple of days. Uh, a disciple's spiritual sight is critical what happens when a person becomes a believer with, with the Holy Spirit present in our hearts is we start looking at things differently. It's the first time that we really see things as they really are. Uh, Romans chapter one, it, it's, um, Romans chapter one is very important passage, especially, uh, well, the first half started the, the Protestant Reformation, but when you get to verse 18 of Romans chapter one, what you see there is that the natural man, the man who does not have the Holy Spirit, makes a volitional effort to suppress the truth and they don't see it. Uh, the spiritual person in this case, the Christian, as Luke is talking about here, has a spiritual sightedness brought on by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 13 is a wonderful insight into this. John chapter 16, uh, verse 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Uh, so this notion again of, of the Holy Spirit leading the Christian, uh, the Christian prays for such vision. The Apostle Paul was always commending this kind of behavior. In the beginning of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. I'll pick up in verse 16 with the, with the beginning of the sentence. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That is, that is a powerful verse about the fact that the Christian has the power of the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit is involved in enlightening us in the ways and the knowledge of God. It's why J.I. Packer began, essentially began, his literary career with a book called Knowing God. It's one of the most important books you will ever read outside of scripture. 
that's the function of the Holy Spirit to see, to help the Christians see this world as it really is. Uh, so the spiritual sightedness is very, very important. Uh, the Christian maintains and grows in this spiritual sightedness through God's word. This is why a person like John Bunyan, if you read many of the Puritans, uh, those, uh, many of those people, uh, John Bunyan being one of them, were not educated people. If you recall, these 12 men that Jesus is preaching to here in Luke 6 were not educated people. They were simple fishermen, but they were simple fishermen who are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and their eyes are going to be open to truthfulness. Uh, it's why most of us, I think, when we think back to, to conversations we had with our parents and grandparents and perhaps great-grandparents, we would always come away thinking, ah, that's wisdom. Knowledge is easy. Knowledge is cheap. Knowledge is, well, not so cheap anymore, but you, you can get, uh, you can buy a bunch of books and get knowledge. Wisdom is something that is imparted by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, it's something that we need to, uh, to make certain that we not only are aware of, but we're growing, we're seeking, we're praying uh, for that growth. The 119th Psalm Verse 98 says, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. Uh, the 119th Psalm, of course, is... Uh, very much focused on the word, 105th verse of that Psalm, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's what Luke is talking about. That's what Jesus is preaching, not only to these uh, men. Again, think about what these 12 in particular are thinking and talking to themselves while Jesus is preaching this sermon. They're feeling increasingly inadequate. And I hope each one of us in this room has moments if not fairly consistent moments, when we too feel inadequate. I get before, as a parent, it comes home to roost so, so forcefully, so often, in so many ways, trying to be a parent, and you're facing something and you desperately need wisdom, and you pray for it and you hope to do the best you can. This is a feeling that every Christian has, but because of this, we seek the spiritual sightedness. Verse 40 is simply a spiritual example of this. Uh, the authenticity is what comes through. Choose your teacher wisely, in other words. Uh, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So if, if your paradigm is bad, you're going to turn out bad. Uh, you want to choose your teachers. And again, this is your teacher, this book. Uh, is the textbook. And finally, here in these few verses, we run into uh, verses 41 and 42, which Kent Hughes entitles, A Carefully Examined Life. Here's what these two verses say. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. 
First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Uh, just so much wisdom compacted in such a short space here in Scripture. That is a characteristic that I remember in seminary being profoundly moved by. No other book is like this, uh, this, this book, this Word of God that can convey in such brevity the deepest of, uh, of the depths of insight that, that humans need. Uh, but uh, again, Psalm 139, 23, 24 concludes this way, familiar verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This, this notion, in other words, uh, of constantly self-assessing. Now, this can be overdone. I don't know if I've mentioned it in here. I, I use it as a, an illustration that was profound when I first heard it years ago. Uh, and I know many Christians who are like this and, and others who are like this who so determined to be healthy that they keep pulling the plant up every day to see, are the roots healthy today? Are the roots healthy today? Well, by definition, the plant isn't going to grow if you pull it up by the roots to examine it every day. So this can be overdone. However, uh, examination and, and searching is what you want God to be doing through the Holy Spirit that is within us uh, to keep us uh, where we need to be. Phil Riken had a fascinating illustration. I think it's helpful on this score. He said, when we examine our hearts, we always need to remember that our depravity is like something in the rearview mirror of a car. Objects are larger than they may appear. <laughs> uh, it is very, very easy to think, who, me? I'm, I'm fine. Uh, you're the one with the problem. And, and to, to uh, head out on a quest for the specks that we see in others' eyes when... Uh, there is a log, in fact, in our own. Uh, so what, how do we put all of these verses together? Well, here's a, here's a quick litany. Uh, do we judge other people? Yes, if we're called upon to do that. When we're called upon as parents and, and employers, teachers, whatever. But be careful when we do it. Do not be judgmental, angry, uh, malicious, hypocritical, blind, foolish, vengeful, censorious. Rather than that, examine your own heart, be slow to speak, love one another, be careful in your words and deeds, forgiving, humble, resolute, God-centered. How do you do all of this? By looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who has given us the Holy Spirit to be a conduit to him and his teaching in this book. It is not an easy journey when a person is a Christian, when you become a Christian, you have become, uh, again, just a blessed, blessed, eternally blessed individual. But between now and being in front of God himself, we have a mission to perform. And this mission is going to uh, perhaps be very difficult to carry out in this world in which we live. But we have been given everything we need in the power of the Holy Spirit to connect us to Jesus and this word of truth, all within the plan of God the Father. Totally Trinitarian, totally biblical, totally doable, but not easily done. A challenge, a challenge worth taking. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, thank you for 
your word and even when it is so so imposing and seems so very difficult father because we too are blind we too are groping and sometimes fall in the potholes and go out the wrong door uh, father we simply would give you thanks for the holy spirit's leading and guidance uh, we pray that we would be humble of heart but that we will also be courageous of action courageous because we know it's not us it's you leading us through these things father we will sin we will fall we will fail and when we do we simply repent of those sins come before you sincerely and know them to be forgiven and we drive on to the next objective father help us in all of these things to learn what it means to love our neighbor we pray these things in jesus name amen <laughs>